Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash Internet for details. Welcome to a very new series. In this series, we'll be analyzing and dissecting individual clubs in the Premier League. We will be joined by journalists um, that cover your club, people within the industry that support your club. And we hope to bring you the best insight possible into your club. Today, we're kicking things off with Liverpool. Lastly, we recorded this episode on Zoom for visuals. Um, So if the sound is not up to its high usual standard, we apologise and we hope you enjoy Hi guys, happy Good Friday. Well, I know it's not Good Friday, but you get what I mean. Before we dive into this, um, we're going to quickly run through the itinerary. So we were joined by Bubbles from Gold Diggers and Melissa Reddy from The Independent. We spoke about Melissa's early career at Gold before moving on to Joe, before moving on to ESPN and now her current place of work, which is The Independent. We gave a detailed analysis into Jurgen Klopp's tenure at Liverpool. We spoke about the high points, the low points and the most challenging periods um, in his tenure as well as what the hopes are for the future for this Liverpool team and whether they're going to dominate for years to come as they potentially end their 30 years of pain and lift up the Premier League trophy. We also questioned Melissa on who she feels Liverpool are going to sign in the summer. So stay tuned and enjoy. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Beautiful Game podcast. I'm your host, Dot. Obviously, we told um, Budge that we're doing a Liverpool special and he pretty much left the group chat um, straight away. But um, I'm with um, three outstanding um, people and um, I'm joined with Dej. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Dot. You know, this is an episode that we've been putting together for a while and to see it materialise, we're very happy. So yeah, without further ado, let's crack. I'm also joined um, by Bubbles from Gold Diggers. How are you, Bubbles? I'm good, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
And we are joined today by a very, very special guest. Um, this is someone that I've followed since her embryonic stages um, at Go.com. And I just remember, uh, you know, putting out content, working hard. And for me, when I look at Liverpool journalists, I rank her right up there with the very best, with the Jane Pearce and the Paul Joyce's of this world. Um, she was previously at um, joe.co.uk and then she moved on to ESPN and now she's a senior reporter at The Independent. We welcome Melissa Reddy onto the platform. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on, you know, Mel. You've no, no pressure on me then. <laughs> you guys have just piled it on. <laughs> yeah, you've written so many lovely pieces and as Dot said, we followed your career. So, you know, to have you on our platform now is it's really humbling and you know, we, we continue to support your journey and support what you do. It's a pleasure to be on. It's very nice to hear positive feedback you know in, <laughs> in the journalism world we live in today you usually just get battered over anything and everything so all, all the positivity is welcome and appreciated so very quickly before we um you know have a deep dive into into all things liverpool we just want to start off um with your career melissa because i know you've had an interesting rise um, and we want people to hear your story. And one thing that we've noticed on this platform is that every single journalist that has come onto the platform has a slightly different story. So mm. take us back to the beginning. Um, I grew up interested in sports. I was raised by my mom alone. And during her, when she was at work and it used to be school holidays, during the week, I would just teach myself a new sporting code learn all the rules and being from South Africa it didn't only mean football it was rugby and cricket as well so quite a sporty kid and then on the weekends I'd um, see my cousins and stuff at my dad's mom's place so everything I'd learned during the week I'd go and put it into practice on the weekend with my cousins and uncles and stuff um, and I was very good at English and history as well so the older I got, there was a part of me that wanted to get involved in politics because I come from um, a family of freedom fighters, obviously grew up in apartheid South Africa. So politics was quite special to me. But then I loved sports so much and just the communication around sport that I, I did think that would be the ideal route for me to take but there was absolutely no opportunities in South Africa, especially for a young female to break into. And I did a lot of odd jobs, PR for Fashion Week and stuff like that. And in 2007, there was an opening at Team Talk, which used to do a lot of Sky Sports's websites and stuff in Cape Town. Uh, there were three jobs up for grabs, but you had to go through this rigorous interview process of doing a quiz, um, doing a rewrite, writing an original story. Oh, they made you jump through so many hoops. <laughs> um, and I flew into, I was living in a different city at the time. I flew in for this interview, put a lot into it, uh, sacrificed a lot of money and stuff. And they said they'd let me know the following week. 
an hour later I was getting a call and I thought I, le- I must have left something behind at this interview and they were like uh, we've not seen results like this if you want the job the job is yours I had to take a oh. massive pay cut for it but I thought I just need that opportunity I just need that chance so yeah that was 2007 which feels like yesterday but obviously um is a really long time ago um I think people are so lucky now if you're young and you're trying to get into journalism uh, especially sports journalism because it has realized that it needs to be a lot more diverse it needs to be a lot more inclusive that wasn't the case even if you look back maybe three years ago um, the landscape was different so it was incredibly incredibly tough to get anywhere every single rise I had to work super hard for do more than any of my colleagues to get you know the same amount of respect or the same amount of opportunities but that was really good grounding because it meant I was never comfortable I was always having to challenge myself Um, and today I look around and I'm very happy that it's changed because I don't think people need to struggle as much as some of us had to do um, to get a footing absolutely yeah, when we look around, we see the likes of Vishali, Amory Batson, you know, forging great careers for themselves. So what main skills would you say you had to have to set you apart from your peers? Um, I think initially it was that I knew quite a lot. Mm. I, I read a lot. I'm very interested. I'm very inquisitive. And I always feel if something is your passion and you want to make that passion your job it doesn't help to just like it you have to be able to ace it ace every element of it and so I I, you could ask me anything about football or cricket or rugby and I'd be able to tell you Um, so that initially the fact that I had such a wealth of knowledge was important also the fact that I my writing style is very different it's not straight off the bat newsy it's quite descriptive and makes you feel uh, emotive or puts you in the place when I do an interview my thing is always make the reader feel like they were sitting there with you and speaking to whoever you're interviewing I think that helped as well and then the other thing I would say is you can never be satisfied with your skill set You can never think, oh, I'm a good writer or I know this much about that subject. That's enough. It never is, especially with the way journalism is shifting now. You have to be great at audio, great at video, Um, no analytics. I think if you're continuously improving and sharpening your skill set, you'll be fine in this industry. I think that's a terrific breakdown <laughs> on your journey and we echo Definitely. those views. When I read your pieces, um, they're very current and that's what I like. So um, now moving on, on to the topic of what we're going to speak about today, we're going to speak about um, Jurgen Klopp's um, tenure at Liverpool. And I want to start from the very beginning. Um, obviously, Brendan Rodgers was sacked on, on the 4th of October and four days later, um, Jurgen Klopp was announced as, as the Liverpool manager. The, the first question, I want to throw it to Melissa first. Um, why did Jurgen Klopp take the Liverpool job? 
I think if you look at Jurgen Klopp's career, it's very crystalline, the kind of work he likes to do. He's a constructor. He wants to go to a place that has a lot of promise and potential and make whatever he finds there a lot better, not just immediately, but in the long term as well. Um, that was the case at Mainz. And I've been back to Mainz, uh, the case at Borussia Dortmund, same thing. I've gone to the West Berlin Stadium to speak to people. And they all say that initially he has to feel a connection to the place. Then he has to know that there are tools there to work with, but tools that still are far away from their seating. So he can help what is there improve. And then he has to be given the time and the patience to actually build something that will have a lasting impact. And you can still see his fingerprints at the other two clubs and at Liverpool when Jürgen Klopp is gone. I think for long after, decades after he leaves, we'll still be talking about all the things he did when he was here. So that strong connection, the fan base, the fact that it's a working class city, they're all things that if you look at where he's been, you think, yeah, perfect fit for Jurgen Klopp. Also, regardless of what state Liverpool were in, this is one of the biggest jobs in world football. There is no other way to slice it. It's historic. Um, and I think often maybe you can feel like you're in the bubble. So what you perceive of the club you support is very blinkered. It's only when you hear other people talk about it. So when I've heard Arsene Wenger speak about Liverpool and the Liverpool job, um, I've got a good relationship with Maurizio Pochettino. When he speaks about being in Argentina and, and learning about Liverpool and knowing Liverpool and playing against Liverpool, what it feels like. So I think it was the perfect marriage because there was all the raw materials for Jurgen Klopp to succeed at a great football institution. Bubbles, um, just very quickly, a question for you. I want to take us back to the very first Jurgen Klopp performance for Liverpool. It was um, the game versus Tottenham at White Hart Lane, mm. and it was an, an 1 1, 0 0 draw, should yeah, I nil, say? Nil, yeah. yeah. What tactical changes did you see in that very first game? Yeah, I think. Even then, in that first game, you know, we'd heard so much of the Gergen pressing and we knew he was going to bring high energy to this Liverpool team. And I think, you know, we could see it then. He took over a very top-heavy Liverpool side, you know, number 10s in Lalana, Firmino, Coutinho and sort of natural strikers in Benteke, Sturridge, Origi. You know, he had to sort of fit all these, fit all these in a system. And I think he started off with sort of a 4-2-3-1 that first season you know messed around with that a bit and then you know quite contrastingly to now we've got wingers we've got pace in our attack and it's quite different so Dej um to me when I when I had a look at that game because I actually re-watched it it seemed that Jurgen Klopp said to Lalana look you're going to be my man you you encompass my philosophy so I'm going to build around you How, how did you see it yeah, as you mentioned, um, obviously Klopp came in and he's synonymous with this pressing philosophy. You know, my players must be able to run 11km or 12km. And I think we saw that during the game that it was sort of like a press off. And I remember Danny Rose coming off after the game and saying, wow, 
that's the most tired I've ever been in a football match because both teams put so much into it. And I think that was going to be what we remember Klopp's early phase of his tenure, you know, pressing high intensities. I mean, the press per defensive action in that game or throughout that season was seven. So that means within every seven passes, you know, a player was pressing the action. But I think over the time and over his tenure, Klopp's realised that this model of football isn't sustainable. And now what we're seeing now is a much more controlled Liverpool. So Mel, in terms of what Klopp was trying to build from the day he walked in, what was he trying to do? Because for me, I saw a team that pretty much didn't fit his philosophy. So was he building towards the next summer? The the first thing the owners said to him actually was there wasn't any talk about we want a Champions League place or we expect the title next season or the target wasn't as specific as that. It was actually something harder. It was we want a recognisable identity on the pitch. We want people to think that's what Liverpool Football Club play like. That's That's how you sum them up. And, you know, he came in and he was speaking about full throttle football, fighting football. And the basis for that was counter-pressing. And one of the first messages he gave to the squad was counter-pressing is the law. It's not negotiable. <laughs> this is what we do. But in order to be... Liverpool at that point could not be the Liverpool that they are now. They could not control possession as comfortably. They could not game manage as well. They didn't have a variance of tools, as Bubble uh, mentioned there, because it was there was such an imbalance. Um, and so initially, what he had to do was get that base right, counter-pressing. Tottenham were possibly the best team for his first game in terms of seeing how the players adapted to his demands. At that time, Pochettino's Tottenham were the hardest workers in the division, uh, ran the most, pressed the most. They were When you thought of a high-pressing team, you thought of Pochettino Spurs. That game, they were outrun for the first time that season. They were outpressed for the first time that season and they didn't, they weren't comfortable in possession and for to have such a short period of time with the injuries that Liverpool had at that uh, in that period as well, Danny Ings, Joe Gomez, Roberto Firmino unavailable. I think actually he only had one available striker, even though there was like five on the books. So even though it was a testing period and a short time, Liverpool adapted quite quickly to that first demand. From then till now, what we've seen is Liverpool master counter-pressing then master the counter-attack with the addition of Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, and now are an all-round machine. Liverpool can adapt several times within a game to both stifle the opposition but also surprise the opposition. So, Dej, um, obviously that season culminated in, in their misses. I mean, we nearly won the Europa League and we nearly won the Carling Cup, what it was called at the time. What do you think Liverpool learned from that experience? And do you think that was Klopp just building the building blocks for the Liverpool that we see today? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge opportunity, you know, during the season. You know, what Klopp um, showed during his time was that he's um, a great cop competition manager, a big game manager, because we saw throughout the season, you know, he went 
I think it was away to Manchester City, beating them 4-1. And he showed that he can get a team together to encompass his philosophy. And I think what we saw in the final was that people were beginning to question his mentality, that he's, you know, a perennial loser. And what he showed was that, you know, I'm going to lick my medicine, learn from these mistakes and make the necessary changes to adapt his philosophy, which is what we saw. We saw towards the end of the season, especially against Sevilla, the players clearly ran out of steam. You could see they were tired. And I think that was the first point where he said, you know what, I'm going to have to tailor my approach to make sure I can have much more success. So moving on to to the summer of um, the next season, I think, you know, Melissa, you've spoken about it on several occasions about this sort of surgical recruitment and surgical reconstruction of, of the team. And, you know, Liverpool signed Ronaldo, um, Loris Carrios, Joel Matip, um, and the man that I want to, you know, dive deeper into, because I know you've written a lot about him, um, Sadio Mane. Um, we all seen his documentary that was released yesterday. Um, he's got 77 goals in 181 games under Jurgen Klopp. Um, how important of a signing was, was Sadio Mane? Sadio was the springboard. I think when we look now, people will say Virgil van Dijk, Mohamed Salah. Uh, Liverpool have done such good business that it's it's difficult to find the standout one. So for me, not the standout one, but the springboard one. Because Sadio Mane allowed Jurgen Klopp to firstly play that counter-attack rapid transition game that Liverpool wanted to, but also showed... Other players like Mohamed Salah, oh, this is how my skill set fits into a team like this. This is how we can elevate it. Sadio was sort of the one that sparked the picture for everyone else. Um, I also think he's so underrated because Sadio came in, played on the right. For Liverpool to sign Mohamed Salah, they put Salah (laughs) on the right. Sadio has played on the left. Sadio can play as a 10. Sadio can play as a number eight. Sadio is playing as the false nine. No matter where you put that man on a football pitch, he is relentless and unbelievable. And he is selfless as well. Um, Genuinely, one of my favorite footballers to watch because he is so intelligent. His decision-making is superb. But also, I cannot stress what a lovely human being he is. Um, so down-to-earth, so friendly, so warm and welcoming that you you could meet him for the first time and feel like you're his best friend because that's what what a big heart he has and how he connects to people. Dej, what's your feeling towards Sadio Mane? Because I know you have, you know, some people that have a decent relationship with him. So just give us some insight into into Sadio Mane. Obviously, I know you watched the documentary as well. Yeah, I mean, as Mel said, he's such a selfless individual. I mean, that um, documentary encompassed what he's had to go through as an individual, you know, famously running away from home in his village to go to the car to pursue his dream. Then his parents or his mum threatened his best friend and said, if you don't tell me where Sadio is, I'm going to beat you up. That's what my mum used to do to me. <laughs> so Sadio said, you know what, I'll come back home under one condition that I get to play football. So they struck a deal. Then he went away to the car. Then he went to his club, the Foot Academy, where he, you know, 
show these amazing skills. I remember one coach saying that um, he ran from one box to the other, played a decisive pass, then his teammates scored and they thought, wow, we've got, you know, a player here. Then obviously from that opportunity came the move to Mets. He went there, suffered a real bad injury and he was thinking, you know what, wow, I'm going to have to go back to Senegal. My dream's over. Then he bounced back and, you know, showed a great vein of form which attracted um, Salzburg went over there to Austria, you know, showed what a good player he was. Then that's when the attention of, you know, British clubs started to rise. Went to Southampton, tore it up there. I think we knew it too well. You know, the game against um, Liverpool, being on the <laughs> bench. <laughs> Two new up before the game was done and dusted. Ronald Koeman brings on Sadio Mane, turns the game around and Klopp almost hugged him and said, you know what? you're going to be a key to my jigsaw. And, you know, we've seen how the jury's, the stories ended up. You know, he's won his Champions League for Liverpool and he's put himself into Liverpool folklore. Bubbles, what was your um, feeling towards that season? Obviously, for me, it seemed like Klopp was trying to implement a high line, but he didn't have the quality of defenders to defend in that style of system. Um, also, when um, Sadio Mane went on um, international duties for the African Cup of Nations, it seems like the club and the team's performance levels fell apart. So, what do you have to say on, on that season as a whole? Yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a weird season because it, we went unbeaten against all of the top six, um, and I think we were even second in December. And then, of course, it went until the last day and we were able to clinch the top four. And yeah, I think Mane coming in was was a big big change to our attack because it meant that, you know, he would become one of the, the main goal scorers. Like Melissa said, then it showed for Salah to come the season later, he would also become one of the main goal scorers. Firmino, you know, really took that, that central forward position and became that in the force nine. And things really changed. And then, yeah, of course, you had Coutinho on the other side. So, yeah. Um, Mel, very quickly, last one before we move on from Mane. Um, there was um, a piece that came out in the documentary about um, Klopp's comments um, towards Sadio Mane. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. He said, I remember my first encounter with Sadio. It was in Dortmund. There was a really young guy sitting there in his baseball cap was a scoop. The blonde streak he still has today. He looks like a rapper just starting out. I thought, I don't have time for this. Our team back then really wasn't bad. I needed someone who can handle not being a starter at the very beginning, someone I can develop. I would say I have a pretty good feeling for people, but I was wrong. What's your takes? Because, you know, some fans, Liverpool fans, opposition fans have said these comments are ignorant um, and is stereotyping and living up to those racial stereotypes. So what is your thoughts on, on those comments? I don't think he phrased it very well at all and actually captured what he was trying to say, which is odd because he's spoken about Sadio so many times and that near miss of signing him. So I, I'm struggling to see why he got it wrong or whether it doesn't translate well from German. It's not the best comments because it is obviously playing to a stereotype. Mm. Um, and I, I think... What he was trying to say is that what he saw or the figure that he saw, he he could only see part, only see the aesthetics and not beyond that of, of what this player could offer, which I actually think a lot of managers and uh, sporting directors and stuff fall down at that hurdle. 
which is unfortunate because he is nothing like what you would think. He's not bling. He's not flash. He looks like the he, most humble. <laughs> yeah, genuinely, he's so he is so so down to earth and basic that even sometimes I joke with him and I ask him like who's told you to buy that jumper or that sweater because it's like Balenciaga and I'm like because <laughs> it's not it's so not him and him and Nabi are like brothers because uh, they were at Salzburg together they've got the same agency now Nabi is th- Nabi is that guy yeah. when he gets to know is very bling bling I'm going to drive a yellow car and an orange one and I'm going to do this and that um where Sadio's like quite humble and, and the reverse. Um, yeah, I don't think his comments were the best and it's completely out of step with everything that he's Definitely. said before or how he's described Sadio before or since. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's a failure of the, the language translation or whatever. L- last thing on, on, on the current season that we're talking about in terms of tactical adjustments, what did you um, guys realise from Klopp's debut season um, up until the second season? What kind of tactical changes did you see um, implemented into the side? Quicker transition, for one, because of the addition of, of Sadio Mane that was possible. Uh, greater midfield control as well. Um a little bit of a uh, Liverpool was still working a lot of um, adrenaline and impulse rather than intelligence, and that was the that would be the big shift leading into the following season. So obviously we've reached um, the 2017-18 um, summer transfer window, um, and Liverpool. Um, you know, bought in Salah, um, Andy Robertson and Oxlade Chamberlain as the big money signings. Um, initially, I'm going to throw this one to Dej. Um, when I saw the Robertson signing, I was underwhelmed. I was like, why are we not getting Mendy? If you want to compete with the best, you need to shop in Harrods and not Lidl, should I say. Yeah. Um, how wrong was I? And I think this is the summer where I can say, okay, Liverpool are trying to be serious now. What did you think about that, Dej? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Andy Robertson, he wasn't a high-profile signing, but, I mean, this is the work of Michael Edwards and, you know, Barry Hunter, you know, doing the recruitment work and going off the money ball philosophy. And this also coincided with the rise of Trent Alexander-Arnold, you know, who dislodged Nathaniel Klein. I think Nathaniel Klein was a, a good defender, but to play the way... Klopp wanted to play, you need to have much more in the attacking third. And I think he lacked that. So, Des, just again to you, obviously, we've spoken to Michael Bill and he called it early. And he also said it on our podcast that he always felt that Trent Alexander was going to, you know, take Nathaniel Klein's shirt. And people thought, wow, you're, you're crazy. But how good is Trent Alexander? I mean, to get in this Liverpool team right now, you're going to have to be a generational talent. And in my opinion, he's very generational. I mean, specifically the way Liverpool play, you know, with their attacks and their creativity now coming from wide. And I think Trent Alexander-Arnold, as Michael Bill said, when he first saw him, he was a gangly teenager, you know, who would do some good things, do some (laughs) bad things. But I think Liverpool had stocks in him from early. 
he was part of the you know um, talent group that Pepin Linders had, where he had all the young players that he would bring to Melwood for one day a week on a Tuesday. And I think they were not sure if it was going to be a central midfielder, but the opportunity to play right back came along and I've been, he's taken his opportunity. And Mel, you've spoken on several occasions about, you know, the behind the scenes, the Michael Edwards and fantastic work. Can you just give us some sort of insight onto how Liverpool created arguably the best recruitment team in the land? I think the interesting thing for me off the bat is that it's the exact same transfer committee that was getting absolutely slated during Brendan Rodgers' time. So all the key individuals, Barry Hunter, uh, Dave Fallows, Michael Edwards, Ian Graham, are all there, still there. The only difference is Ian Eyre is gone and Michael Edwards does the negotiating now. But why it didn't work then is because there was no unity. So you had Brendan Rodgers not wanting to be collaborative, probably such a big job and such a departure from what he's used to um, in terms of control came too quickly in his career if if I'm playing devil's advocate but because there was no joined up thinking you had Liverpool's recruitment business so scattergunned so you had them bringing in Christian Benteke and Roberto Firmino at the same time because Roberto Firmino was a uh transfer committee signing Christian Benteke was what Brendan Rodgers wanted and both of them the committee and Brendan believed that that was Liverpool's number nine so Liverpool bought two players to be their number nine who are completely different Mm. for a lot of money combined so that's the difference when okay so you have the same structure now you have a different working philosophy now it's we're all responsible for everything one voice this is the type of player we go for. This is stylistically what we're looking for. Michael Edwards has control over his area. Jürgen Klopp, obviously the two of them, Jürgen Klopp and him, discuss. Mike Gordon is there to support their decision. And that's it. When I say you have collaboration now, Jürgen Klopp wanted Julian Brandt. Julian Brandt didn't want to come to Liverpool because he thought he wouldn't get game time. Actually, very smart young man who I think credit to him because it's very difficult. Yeah, very difficult at that stage to get a big Premier League coming after you and having Jurgen Klopp's charm offensive and being mindful enough to think I'm not ready for that yet. And, you know, Michael Edwards says, hang on, what about Mohamed Salah? And Jürgen Klopp's like, are you serious? And then the thinking behind why Mohamed Salah gets explained to him, he's like, okay, fully on board, let's go do this. So when you have collaboration, you can discuss things freely like that. It doesn't become about egos. It's purely based on what the individuals conclude will be best for Liverpool. So do you almost feel like that Salah signing was in reaction to what happened when Mane departed from the team now so for example the pace came out of the team and we struggled to break down opponents so do you feel that Klopp learned a big lesson and thought that he needs to have two wing wizards on the wing to be effective I don't know if it was a lesson per se I think Liverpool would have gotten another attacker obviously 
part of why we say Liverpool are smart is because they don't go and do everything at once. One, because they can't really afford to. They're not Manchester United or Man City who can just spend, spend, spend on, on one position. So they staggered it and would reassess every uh, summer to see, okay, how far the team has progressed tactically and what they'd need to add. So another attacker was always on the books, but I think Mane's success and then the struggle in his absence made it so much more pronounced how important it is to have another rapid attacker who understands um, movement without the ball, who can just incite fear into opponents. Um, I think Salah, obviously, now we have hindsight, we can say it, but a better fit than Julian Brandt because Salah was so far progressed in his career. He'd had the disappointments, the knock, he'd had to prove himself. Um, and he was ready to come back to England and prove a point. And I think everything aligned for him, mm-hmm. as well as his interaction with, with Salah and Firmino, for that front three to become the best in the world. Bubbles, um. Obviously, that summer, we um, pursued Virgil van Dijk heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think happened in the summer? Why didn't that deal happen? And did you always know that Liverpool will go back in for Virgil van Dijk at the back of your head? Well, I, I think Melissa would know the, the journalistic insight better than me. But, yeah, I think we all knew at the time, once it failed, we're like, well... We will go back for them. But there was that sense of frustration, I think, within the fan base. Mm. And then you look a couple of games into the season, the Tottenham away game, uh, you know, lose 4-1. Lovren gets taken off after 30 minutes. And it's like, well, you know, the same problems you've seen in the last three seasons are still here. You've not addressed the, defen- the, the defensive problem. We didn't get Van Dijk. Should we have just gone for someone else? But, you know, we all knew Klopp was waiting. Van Dijk came in, yeah, of course, you know. Don't need to say about the impact he made. But Dad, do you think that, you know, just to butcher us on, on Bubbles' point, do you think that 4-1 was a poignant moment in um, Jurgen Klopp's tenure at Liverpool? Because what I noticed is before that game, you'll have both full-backs flying forward at the same time. And I think after that, he kind of tempered with the full-backs a bit. Yeah, um, as you said, I think to play the formation Klopp wanted to play, you need to have two quick centre-backs. And Lovren doesn't encompass the skills necessary to be able to cover, like we see with Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk. So I think Klopp, after that game, thought, you know what, defensively, I need to sort this team out if we're going to get to the level where we're going to be challenging for trophies. And obviously, we saw what happened in January with obviously Coutinho leaving, then Virgil van Dijk signing. And I think... That Coutinho sell has been the springboard to get, you know, Liverpool to the final destination, as Klopp liked to call it, in his um, first press conference where he said he doesn't want to be selling his best players. But I think that was a, an agreement that suited all parties. Coutinho wanted to leave. And because he was so good, Klopp had to fit him into the Liverpool team. But that then made Klopp realise that he can make a Liverpool that he wanted to make. And I think that's what we saw. Mel, final one on this season. Obviously, it culminated in Liverpool getting to the Champions League final. I think Mohamed Salah had arguably one of the best seasons we've seen in English football. The question I want to pose to you is, do you feel that if Liverpool won that Champions League final, we will see the same Liverpool that we see today? Or do you think they would have kind of lost their motivation? 
That's a very good question and an interesting one because I feel this Liverpool is best when they've been knocked down. There is something in them that just comes back that much harder, that much more angry, more motivated. We've even seen it with them missing out on the league title by a point and then deciding to come back and storm storm the season, just, just walk it. Um, I, I don't think this team has it in them to get complacent. So I wouldn't say that would have happened, but maybe the following summer and stuff, maybe Liverpool don't think to themselves, actually, we need that world-class goalkeeper. Maybe they think, oh, no, we're, we're fine as we are in that position. Um, so I do think it had some knock-on effects. Um, and also, I think the, the biggest thing about Kiev, for me, was the rebirth of Liverpool's fan base as this massive influence on that team. I think we saw it through that Champions League run, but being in Shevchenko Park was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And there was a big difference between people that attended the final or watched the final like on TV and stuff and people who were in the park, who were in Shevchenko Park mm. and watched the final. Because the, the ones in Shevchenko Park were disappointed but defiant because of what they'd experienced during the day. And there was really a sense that something incredible was building. Whereas the other ones were just dejected. They didn't have that <laughs> defiant feeling. Because, because it's, it's hard to really explain, but I, I attended the game and went to the park and I had friends who attended the game and never went to the park. Mm. And our emotions afterwards were completely different. But, I, I I think Liverpool's, I wrote a piece before the final saying that Liverpool felt regardless of what happened, the trajectory was up, that they were going to fly because they had put together all these stepping stones, which they were going to build on Fabinho after 48 hours from losing the final, for example. Um and I'll stick by that point that regardless of what that result was in the final, I think the Liverpool that we see today, we were always going to see. So obviously um, that season, you know, ended up in pain, as Melissa said. But the summer of that season, I think Liverpool, you know, went on a relentless, aggressive pursuit. And um, they, you know, secured the Fabinho transfer within days um, of, of that Champions League final. Um, they also signed Naby Keita, Shakiri, and the big one, um, Alison Becker. Um, I think this in, this season's interesting to me because I think this was the first time when I think Klopp started to change with his formation. I think he started juggling between a four-two-three-one and a four-three-three. Um, Dej, why do you think Klopp was trying to find the right balance? Um, I think obviously Klopp was trying to find the right balance between as Pepin Linders called it, organised chaos. We've seen in the early stage of Klopp's tenure, it was a bit frantic, frenetic, but it wasn't sustainable. And I think Klopp picked Alison Becker because he realised that the goalkeeping issue was becoming a problem. We saw Loris Karius, Mignolet make several errors and that doesn't breed confidence for your centre-backs and you know it spreads throughout the team. So I think Klopp bringing in Fabinho was a clever deal obviously offset by the departure of Emre Can because 
Fabinho, even though he showed in that Champions League run for Monaco, he can be a good player. The next season, he sort of tailed off. So this was a player that still had that hunger, but he still needed that bit of kicking. And those are the sorts of players that Klopp likes to go for. And I think he's been, you know, the final piece of that jigsaw. So we've got the spine of Alisson Becker, Virgil van Dijk, Fabinho in that middle, and Firmino up front. And I think now Liverpool are a team set to, you know, win trophies. They're at that stage where they're maturing and for the next 12 to 18 months, I can see them winning titles. So then at the time, did you think, okay, this team is now complete? Did yes. you feel that, you know, the Liverpool team were good enough to, to win trophies? Yeah, I think this was the point where you have to start saying, okay, enough of the mistakes, the poor performances. Obviously, you can get poor performances here and there, but this was the stage where I said, you know what, we can't be judged as a team in their embryonic stages or learning the game. So, Mel, would you think, do you think there was a pressure on Liverpool to now deliver after they, you know, spent big? Or do you think, you know, the owners would have still accepted their misses this season? No, I think there was the expectation that, okay, We've been building for a point now. Uh, There's been a lot of investment into the team, a lot of areas, weaknesses that the club have struggled with for a while. Goalkeeping position left back. Um, Those areas with defensive midfielder, you know, where people have spent nearly a decade whining about, okay, all these (laughs) have been, (laughs) all these have been sorted now. Uh, Variety in the attack. Liverpool can go and push Manchester City close. No, I don't think anyone thought it would be as close as it actually ended up because City were redefining what it means to be English Premier League champions. Um, But I think what happened last season was so important psychologically to tell Liverpool that City weren't untouchable. Bubbles, and just one for you. Why do you think the integration of Fabinho took so long? Because for me, I saw a midfield that the balance wasn't quite there. I think Henderson was getting criticised by a number of fans, including myself. I think we're now done. People were saying, yeah, he's really press resistant, but what does he do with the ball? So why do you think it took Fabinho so long to get integrated into this team? I think we've seen it with all of Klopp's signings. They take a six-month period of, of getting up to speed. And I, I think it's probably a fitness thing, in my opinion, just from what I've seen. You know, coming from the French League, I don't want to disrespect the French League, but it's it's a different level of intensity to the to the Premier League. And being the lone DM as well is a lot of responsibility on that. You know, you can't, you can't make a mistake there because it will be punished. So I think, we, we, you know, everyone knew the quality that he had to bring to the team, but it was just a case of getting up to speed, getting tactically aware of the system as well and, and you know, growing into the role. Mel, did you notice um, any tactical changes from last season? Because to me, it seemed like Klopp was more confident in, in his defence. Now he's got, you know, the best centre-back in the world. Did you feel that, like, Liverpool can defend two versus two? And I remember a moment against um, Tottenham, where Sissoko was breaking on in goal and we were literally like, yeah, this is 100% going to be a goal. And the way Van Dijk marshaled the defence just was absolutely outstanding. So do you feel that Klopp felt confident that he can leave his defenders two on two? 
Yeah, I think Liverpool take a lot more risks defensively in every sort of aspect, whether it's with defending set pieces or in open play, because they have a world-class goalkeeper who has incredible um, reflexes and anticipation. So they know he's very good at dealing with situations. The reason they spent so much money on Virgil van Dijk and waited for him is because they did a lot of analysis on centre-backs defending large spaces because they know the way Liverpool play, you'll always be exposed. There was no one else, no one anywhere close to as good as Virgil van Dijk, so they waited for him. So having those two, having a very quick Joe Gomez, having very quick wing-backs as well, um, or full-backs, who are very smart in and out of possession, means Liverpool can take a lot more risks. It also means that essentially Liverpool's defenders and goalkeeper are part of the attack. How often do we see Alisson get the ball and quickly set Liverpool on the attack? Trent Alexander-Arnold is Liverpool's best playmaker. Everybody was crying out for a number 10, you know, go and get Fakir or get somebody to replace the senior. You don't need that when you're right back can put balls in like Kevin De Bruyne from that position. He's like, it's, it's unreal. It's incredible. Um, so yeah, because of that, that mix in defense, he is very comfortable at, at playing a high risk game. Uh, but what that means is Liverpool are very conservative in midfield. You can't have it all. So I see the midfield getting slated a lot, but if you want Kevin De Bruyne at right back, basically, <laughs> and and you want to play this high-risk, high-reward game, you have to be conservative somewhere, especially with the attackers Liverpool have, and that somewhere is in central midfield. So let's fast forward to, to the end of the season. Obviously, I know we're um, running short of time. Um, Dej, this is a question for you. Obviously, that season culminated in, in Liverpool um, ending the season with 97 points and lifting a very, very shiny um, Champions League for, for the sixth time. A lot of opposition fans say, you know, Liverpool bottled the league. Do you share that opinion? I don't think we bottled the league, but I think it was a missed opportunity, you know, per se. I mean, I think for me, it all boiled down to the game at the Etihad that was, you know, decided by razor-thin decisions. And I think, again, it just shows that this Liverpool team have the mentality because they bounce back time and time again from, you know, adverse decisions. And I think Klopp in the summer appointed Lee Richardson, who was like a psychologist who works with the club on an ad hoc basis and who's there for the players if they need him. And I think Liverpool have shown that, you know, time and time again, they can weather a storm and come back and bounce back. And Mel, can you just take us to that massive night very quickly um, at Anfield against Barcelona? What kind of belief did that performance give the team? Because for me, I think that's the greatest performance I've seen in my lifetime from a Liverpool team. I think to look at the Barcelona game, you have to first just put it into context. One, the leg at at Barcelona was probably the most complete European performance I've seen off a team away from home. Liverpool were exceptional. And to be that exceptional and suffer such a margin of defeat was quite deflating. So that's one element. 
Then you think in the game, Manchester City against Leicester, uh, against Leicester, Vincent Company strike. So L- Liverpool go into this encounter at Anfield against Barcelona, knowing they have to score, not concede. They're missing Mohamed Salah and Roberta Firmino. Uh, they had so many other injuries. Nabi Kato got injured in the first leg. You even forget all of these things in the midst of the craziness that unfolds. And regardless of all these things that are happening, the manager still tells them, if there's any group of players who can get this done, it's you. I, I know you can do it. And you can tell when the first goal goes in, the reaction of the crowd and the bench and on the pitch, you can tell they believe. But it's when the second goal is scored, the entire complexion, you have Leo Messi and Luis Suarez hands on their, on their laps, like heads down. And Alison, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alison, Alison had played in the game against Roma the season prior where Roma did the unthinkable against Barcelona. And I interviewed him and he said that that moment that he saw Messi and Suarez react that way, he knew that they were like, not again, this is happening again. And he said <laughs> once he said once that was in their minds, it was game over. He knew Liverpool was going to win. But I, ca- I cannot explain to you, and now that we don't have football, it makes moments like that, that you, are, at the time, you know you're sitting and witnessing something absolutely unreal. But so much is happening, you've got to file and stuff so you don't soak it in. But now that we don't have any football, honestly, wow. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think decades from now, when you think about it, that you had a team that are so skilled at scoring with the best player in the world, and all they needed was a goal. Liverpool needed to climb so many obstacles to, to even actually be positive at kickoff for that game. So to do what they do in those circumstances, uh, we'll be talking about it forever and ever and ever. I think I think it shows a complete 180, actually, of the Kiev final a year before. Salah goes off injured, and it almost feels like, well, everything's against us mm. now. And, you know, I feel like our performance as well. It was second grade to Real Madrid once Salah goes off there. Mm. And now, a year later, we lo- we've lost Salah and we've lost Firmino, but we're going to come back anyway, and we're going to win this time. So, just very quickly before we go on to the next season, just the Champions League final. I think, do you feel on a, you know, tactical mentality standpoint that, you know, this Klopp's team is, is changed in, in terms of mentality? Um, as in, the way they played the final, they showed a lot of game management and Liverpool have been very guilty of, you know, chucking away leads. So, did you feel that was like the making of this new Liverpool that we see today? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, this Liverpool team have several different ways to beat you, counter-attack, control. And in that final, we saw a sort of boring game. But as a Liverpool fan, I don't mind that because we've had finals where we've played spectacular and not got the result. So I think what we showed was, as you mentioned, game management. And I think Alison Becker put in a great performance as well. I thought he offered that assuredness at the back that, you know, Karius didn't in the final previous to that. And I think as we've seen this season that we are in right now, Liverpool are much more controlled. They play the game on their terms. Teams are happy to let them have the possession 
and um, Liverpool know how to open them up through the fullbacks of Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. So, Melissa, going on to, to the summer of, of this season that we're at right now, did you feel we needed recruitment? Because I was one of those fans and saying that, OK, you've got 97 points, you've won the Champions League, you now build. <laughs> and then I saw no transfer activity. Was it a case of Jurgen Klopp trusting his players or was it the case that Liverpool have run out of coins? They had no more money. So in the summer, uh, I was on tour with the club in the US and I did an exclusive of Klopp and put it out where he said, keeping these guys here, you know, giving them new contracts, those are our signings because there's no one better for this team than the than the people that are already here obviously got absolutely slated because I can tell you (laughs) there is nothing 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 a football fan loves more than a transfer Liverpool will win the league or win the Champions League and the first thing after that is people like who are we signing like that's forgotten about what Uh, what trophy I was was checking your Twitter page every day and I was like (laughs) 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 And, and the issue is as a as a writer, it's very interesting if a club signs someone. It gives you a lot of content, but also it's the adrenaline of being the first to announce it or getting the information or speaking to the age, whatever. So even for a journalist, it's chances are good. So when we're saying it's not happening, it's not because we don't want it to. It's it's what the club are saying. It's not happening. Mm-hmm. And I often get abused. Like I was sitting there with Michael Edwards and being like, you know what, Mike, Liverpool don't need any signings. Don't go and do anything. Um, <laughs> I, I thought in the summer that all Liverpool needed was backup. Backup in the fullback positions. And that was basically it because I, I knew they were going to get Harvey Elliott, who is going to be a massive player in future if, if everything aligns for him and he, and he keeps his head right. Um, so I wasn't interested. Oh, I, I looked at Liverpool squad and I didn't see where they would fit a blockbuster, blockbuster signing. Um, and I also thought, I agreed with the manager, that the most important thing is tying everyone down. Mm. Because I think this team can still grow together. Mm. So, so Dej, um, this one's for you. How have Liverpool managed to create this record-breaking, you know, jaw-dropping team? What has Klopp done and how do you feel that, you know, how is this team going to improve? Um, I think what Klopp has managed to do is, once he's came into the club, he's analysed where the team needs strengthening. Initially, it was, you know, the lack of pace. Sadio Mane addressed that issue and it's been about periodical change. He hasn't just bought five, six, seven signings in a row. He's done, you know, he's fitted pieces of the jigsaw. And um, as we've seen, it's a well-rounded group. Most of them are 27, 28, 29. How does he improve the team? I think he has to keep that fire burning in the players because when you're winning, it's easy to get complacent. But I think what Klopp has done, he's identified characters. And when you look at the likes of Sadio Mane, the Fabinho's, the Jordan Henderson's. These are people that have set a high standard and these are players that won't rest on their laurels. So I think from now on, it's just about 
maintaining the focus and the consistency levels. And obviously Liverpool giving Jurgen Klopp that contract onto 2024, you know, shows that they still believe in him as a manager long term. Even when these players on the drop, he can still make sure Liverpool qualify for the Champions League year in, year out. Bubbles, one second. I'm going to quickly throw it to Mel, then I'm going to come back to you, Bubbles. But would you say Jordan Henderson is is indicative to Klopp's journey at Liverpool? Because Jordan Henderson is a player that, you know, a lot of fans, including myself, said, you know what, he's not good enough to start every single game for Liverpool Football Club. And now he's so important to the squad. And how is his mentality... How is his hunger to, you know, learn and improve every day? Because for me, he's just an outstanding professional. The first thing you need to know about Jordan Henderson is whatever is best for Liverpool Football Club, he will do it. And the important thing to say about that is that not everyone at any club has that mentality. Because footballers inherently, you know, will think about their own careers, Mm. their own performances, want to progress. He has a collective mindset. Everything that we think of a captain, you know, often people want somebody who's shouting on the pitch or somebody to blam it in the top corner because, you know, that's what we get told a leader does. Um, And he is, you need to listen to what his teammates say about him, whether it's Van Dyke. And, you know, when Liverpool signed Virgil, everyone was saying that he should be captain. Virgil will be the first one to say to you that Jordan Henderson is the only person who deserves to be Liverpool captain while he's at the club. Um, I think in terms of how that dressing room operates, in terms of how new signings settle in, um, just so you know, with, you know, the players getting attacked, who goes and sorts out the the crisis fund, it's Jordan Henderson. Um, The Raheem Sterling, Joe Gomez fight on England camp, who sorts it out? Jordan Henderson. Um, There is a lot of things that he never ever wants writing about and that he doesn't shout and scream about. But I can tell you, anyone and everyone associated with Liverpool should be so, so, so proud that he's got the captain's armband because he's an absolute standout person. Bubbles, do you feel that he should be, you know, crowned um, the PFA Player of the Year on his performances this season? Because what I noticed is that when he came out of the team, the performance level started to drop. Yeah, I think, I've said this a couple of weeks ago now, I said that over the past sort of 18 months, I'd say him, along with Sadio Mane, are probably our most improved players in the starting eleven. I think he has reached a level this season in both the holding midfield position and, like, the number eight that I didn't think Henderson could, could get to. And, you know, he's proved that he can bring assists, he can bring energy. You know, in these big Champions League games since 2017, he's been the one who sets the press for the midfield, you know, who brings the energy. And I don't know if it's enough to to warrant PFA Player of the Year because obviously you've got the De Bruyne shouts, you've got, you know, all these other player shouts. But, yes, he should definitely be in contention for it. And, you know, I wouldn't be mad if he won it. And um, I've got one more question each for all of you before we round up. Um, this one's for Dej. What, what would you say was the pivotal moment of this season? Because for me, that game against Aston Villa away, I know Simon Hughes, <laughs> I was harping on about that game as well. But 
I just think that game is where the mentality went from we want to win the league to we are going to win the league. What was the pivotal moment for you, Dej? Um, I would say the Leicester game um, away when Liverpool went to the King Power Stadium and absolutely blew them away. I thought actually it was one of Naby Keita's best performances in a Liverpool shirt. This was a game that was earmarked for a potential defeat owning to the fact that obviously um, Fabinho had been injured and people weren't sure how the midfield were going to react. And also to the fact that Leicester had been on a, an amazing run under you know, the old Liverpool manager, Brendan Rodgers. So I think the way we went there and the way we dispatched of them, I thought we thought, yeah, this team is going to take some stopping. Mel, would you say that was one of the most memorable Premier League performances you can remember from Liverpool? Yeah, because firstly, Leicester is very hard to get to. It's very awkward. And every time you do that trip, you think to yourself, oh, it's going to be one of those evenings again. Oh. You know, Jamie, Jamie Vardy on the counter. Oh, Brendan Rodgers. He wants to yeah, do one at Liverpool. Yeah, it's just going to be a pain. You always get that feeling when you go to Leicester. And to see Liverpool dismantle them, with some comfort and such surety was honestly, I, I, I think I've spoken to two managers who said they watched that game and thought, yeah, no, those are the champions because they'd already seen Liverpool um, control really tight games. They, they knew Liverpool could keep clean sheets. They'd seen all these factors from Liverpool. But what they wanted to see was how Liverpool could handle under pressure some a team that was termed like a title rival. And Liverpool answered emphatically. Definitely. And obviously, um, as things stand right now, Liverpool have 27 wins from 29. We all know that they lost their unbeaten run against Watford. And, you know, people are starting to say, yeah, the season is starting to un- unravel. But this is a question for all of you. How do you think this season is going to culminate? Are we going to see it finish or do you think it's going to be rendered um, null and void? It will be finished behind closed doors, most likely, because the intention is to finish it. They financially need to finish it because it's not just uh, diabolical for the Premier League clubs in terms of their purses, if it's not clubs lower down the pyramid that rely on the money to filter down will go out of existence and football as we know it in this country will change. So there is no option but to finish it. I think as soon as they get the go-ahead from government, games will start behind closed doors. And Des, this is a question for you. In terms of summer activity, where do Liverpool strengthen um, to take the team forward? And I think we could probably fire the you know, the rumour, the, the rumour mill at Melissa is Timo Werner happening, is Jaden Sancho <laughs> happening. So, Dej? Yeah, I think in the forward positions, Liverpool need um, a lot more variety because, you know, we're keeping, you know, having to go to Mohamed Salah, Firmino, and they can only do so much. Their games are going to need to get managed, and especially with the African Cup of Nations, with Salah, and money potentially going away, that's something that's going to need to um, take some care into. And also to the fact that Shakiri's rumoured to be leaving the club. I also think centre-back. I think Dejan Lovren has maybe reached the end of his tether at Liverpool Football Club because I think it will be 
it will suit all parties if he's to leave the club. He's 30, 31 years of age right now. He needs to be playing football. And when you look at the hierarchy, he sits comfortably third when all of the defenders are fit. And I also think there needs to be um, cover at left back. I think Andy Robertson's had to play through some knocks. Obviously, Milner can do a filling job, but I think long-term, if Klopp wants to build a dynasty that he talks about, these are the areas that Liverpool need to um, find some covering. Bob, was any final thoughts from you? Uh, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, we look at our, our teams that have played the Cups this season and the amount of promising young players we have coming through, especially a fullback, you know, Neka Williams, Keanu Hoover, Adam Lewis. You know, I, I don't know if maybe Klopp's plans are to have one of them, the... Um, back up for fullback in the future possibly but yeah you know I, I, Melissa said it we all love a transfer you know there's so many names flying around and Mel what, what happens in the summer can you give us some sort of insight <laughs> into you know it's, the, the it's so difficult now because you know I did a big piece maybe a month ago about Liverpool's plans for the summer window that you'd see a blockbuster i.e. 80 million pound or more signing only if one of the big hitters leave. There's no expectation that anyone wants out. And so you'd likely to see a, a Sadio Mane type signing, somebody of that profile who's young, can develop, who Sadio Mane cost 30 million, in, 30 million pounds in 2016. That figure is probably more like around 50 million now. So it still would be substantial money, but not, you know, mega, mega fee. Um, the issue is football has completely changed and if any one of us think we can still talk about the transfer window like we were before coronavirus <laughs> we're all delusional because clubs actually have no idea how much money they're going to have in two months three months time let alone what budget for transfers is going to be like if i was guessing i would say somebody like timo werner if he was willing to be a squad player, if he was willing to understand that he's Germany's number nine and he will not play every week possibly, if he comes to Anfield and everyone stays there, I think somebody like him makes a lot of sense. But I can't see a Jaden Sancho type signing, which I know would be very exciting. But yeah. if, if one of the players everybody loves at Anfield doesn't leave, then I don't see it happening. And thank you very much, Melissa. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we do end up 30 years of pain and, you know, <laughs> end up lifting up the prestigious Premier League. But we just want to say a massive, massive, massive thank you for taking time out um, to come onto the podcast. We appreciate all your support from the bottom of our heart. So thank you. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed that very much. Have a good, good Friday and Easter Same weekend. Although you. every day Same feels... to you. So we're going to leave it there. Um, make sure you follow our Twitter um, at podcast underscore TBG. We're also on Instagram pod underscore TBG. We're also on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Zoom. So we apologize if the sound is not as good as what we usually um, deliver. Um, the YouTube is the Beautiful Game Podcast. If there's anything Kim, you want to debate about, please use the hashtag TBGpod. We're a diverse platform. We don't discriminate. We're on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 
Um, leave a five-star review and we will see you on the next episode. Peace. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.